wherever we find water on Earth, we find life. And over time, biologists have been discovering that Earth life is incredibly hardy. It can handle being dried out, radiated, heated, frozen, and it just keeps coming back for more. And there are several life forms that are incredibly hardy. One of the most hardy of these is called Dinococcus radiodurans, and it was actually discovered because it was handling intense amounts of radiation. And researchers have been studying this for decades now to understand how it works. Why is it so hardy? And based on recent research simulating the conditions of Mars, it turns out this bacteria could handle living under the surface of Mars for hundreds of millions of years. Is it still there right now? Could we find it? Are there ways that we could uncover if there is still life on Mars? And if so, where should we look? What would it look like? What would be the signals we would be looking for? I had a fascinating conversation with Dr. Michael Daly from the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences in Bethesda, Maryland. He has been studying this specific bacteria for well over 30 years, has pushed it to the limits, and has made some very interesting discoveries about just how hardy Earth life is, and how ready it is to go to places like Mars. All right, here's the interview. Well, Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So tell me about this microbe that you've been studying for a long time. Uh-huh. Well, the name is Dinococcus radiodurans. Uh, it has uh, the, the, the Greek and Latin roots mean strange or terrible radiation resistant berry. Uh, it's a bacterium that I've been working on for 30 years, and it's most famous for its extreme resistance to both the lethal and mutagenic effects of ionizing radiation. That's X-rays, gamma rays, galactic cosmic radiation, and solar protons. Where, where did, was it first discovered? It was first discovered uh, in 1956 or so by Artie Anderson, who was a microbiologist uh, studying contamination of food post-irradiation. Back in the 50s, they were sterilizing food for the first time by cobalt-60 gamma irradiation, and they found that the tins of meat that they had been sterilizing with cobalt-60 spoiled, and they bulged, and when they opened them up, after these very large doses of ionizing radiation, they isolated what they then named Micrococcus radiodurans, and it was renamed in the 80s as Dinococcus radiodurans. And so is it believed that, that this microbe has been around for a long time living in radioactive environments, or was no. this a more recent evolution? No, this, it's, an, it's a very, very ancient organism, bacterium, that has been around presumably for billions of years. Now you said, oh, do they live in radioactive wastes and things like that? The answer is no. There is, there, oh, the long, long, long history of Earth, there has never been levels of ionizing radiation that approach the levels that these and other bacteria can survive. So the question always becomes, well, why are they so radiation resistant? And the answer is going back to a large body of work by John Batista at LSU, who showed that desiccation causes very similar damage to ionizing radiation. 
desiccation will break DNA and introduce double-strand breaks, which are very lethal. But the ionizing radiation and desiccation also fry the proteome. All the protein machinery required to put DNA back together again is also damaged. And these bacteria, the Deinococcus bacteria, have evolved a way of protecting their proteome from all the free radicals that are generated during ionizing radiation. And moreover, they have what we call multiple genomes. They have multiple copies of their genomes. And as we show in the paper, very importantly, these identical genome copies are linked together, what we call by holiday junctions, which are interstrand crosslinks, which hold everything together so that when you have a double strand break, your repair template is never far away from you to be able to put yourself back together again. So this, so, I mean, desiccation is absolutely common. I mean, we're just coming out of a drought here uh, on Vancouver Island, and I'm sure there's a whole lot of bacteria in my soil right now, which are appreciating the return of the rain. And so do we see that in other life forms? Like I, I know that tardigrades, for example, can handle desiccation. 100%. And, and, and fungi and, you know, and various fungi and other kinds of very hardy life forms. Indeed. And I think uh, the prime example that we talk about is a nematode worm called C. elegans. Mm -hmm. And C. elegans is a model, simple animal uh, that we reported on uh, earlier this year in February in MBio. And we reported that these worms are spectacularly radiation resistant. And they use the same mechanisms as Enococcus bacteria to protect their proteins. And so C. elegans can survive thousands of gray and live a normal life. Yeah, it's remarkable. Not only these C. elegans worms, there are rotifers uh, worked on by Matthew Meselson at Harvard. There are many other forms of life that are incredibly resistant to desiccation. And when they are desiccated, there's almost, there's no detectable, detectable metabolism. And simply by adding water back by equation, you can revive them. So this trait of desiccation resistance is not limited to the bacterial world, but extends also to simple animals and importantly, to most fungi. And that's yeasts and mushrooms and filamentous fungi. They are remarkably radiation resistant as we have published. Over the last year, or last couple of years, we've uh, studied very carefully about 100 fungi uh, that we received from a group at the University of Ljubljana in Slovenia, uh, led by Nina Gunda Zimmermann and Sene Gostinchar, who have assembled a collection of 17,000 fungi uh, that they've isolated and characterized and are, are available for study. And we worked with this group. And from this collection, we report remarkable ionizing radiation resistance of a S. cerevisiae, a yeast, a baker's yeast, which is domesticated fungus, that they can survive extraordinary levels of ionizing radiation. Not as great as deradiodurans, but nevertheless, huge. And, and are a more complex animal in 
in sort of size and structure. I mean, it's a it's it's next level to see yeast survive that kind of a punishment. Now, in the press release, the research that I read, you say this bacteria can live for hundreds of millions of years and be mm-hmm. restored. Well, that's it's that is that's what the numbers say. And let me explain how we got to those numbers. So in the past, over the decades, we have done hundreds and many laboratories around the world have studied D-radiodurans and its remarkable resistance to ionizing radiation, usually gamma rays. Those studies over the last 30 years or more have all been looking at Deinococcus when it is grown in an aqueous liquid culture, like we all do in a microbiology laboratory. And so no one really had looked at the effects of drying cells down and then freezing them and then looking at their DNA repair capacity. We got a hint about 20 years ago in a small report in the National Academy of Sciences dealing with Mars uh, in a report written by John Batista, who submitted some early preliminary data showing that D-radiodurans, when it is dried, can survive not 25,000 gray, but well over 100,000 gray. That work was left undone for 20 years because getting to the sort of doses that we require to sterilize D-radiodurans were almost unattainable by most folks. Right. So so we finally got our uh, irradiation set up resourced, which means that we had higher dose rates, which means we could go back and we could follow up on John Batista's early work. And we did. And so basically what we did is to take the bacteria, which were grown in liquid cultures, standard cultures, they were then uh, put into inert containers, which were then dried over five days in the presence of a desiccant called dryerite. After desiccation, the samples were then frozen at temperatures approximating the surface of Mars, which is about minus 60 degrees centigrade. We actually use dry ice, which is minus 80 degrees centigrade. So once the cells had been dried and frozen, they were then put into the cobalt-60 irradiator and turned on. And then we waited. And microbes. And we waited. No, not poor Michael. No, I know, I know. They, poor, the poor yeah. graduate student who had to sit there for right. days on end monitoring this. That his right. The poor radiation Paul source. It had, it, you know, probably, uh, you know, the half-life ran out before these things. Uh, <laughs> anyway, the bottom line is we did finally get there. And the doses uh, that we required to sterilize, to get rid of all viable cells within those cultures that were frozen and desiccated in the irradiator. It took 140,000 gray, 140,000 gray to sterilize and get rid of the last viable cell when they were desiccated and frozen. And so give me some kind of comparison, right? Like what, if it was (laughs) sitting on the surface of Mars, how long would it take before it took 140,000? You're getting exactly to the right question. So you ask, well, how did we come up with 280 million years? Mm -hmm. All right. So we do know the background planetary radiation dose rate beneath the surface of Mars, which is assumed reasonably to be the same as on Earth because our evolution of of planet Earth and Mars are very similar. 
And we, the dose rate uh, below the surface of Mars, I believe 0.05 milligray uh, per year. I will have to check, uh, make sure I get that right. But anyway, so you divide, you divide the, uh, the 140,000 gray by the dose rate below 10 meters on the surface of Mars. And that's what gives you the ah, number. So, so sorry, let Go me ahead. just make sure I understand here. As you get closer to the surface, the radiation dose rates go higher. And so survivability is much less. When you are at the very surface of Mars, of course, uh, you are being impacted not only by galactic cosmic radiation, but you are being hit. The regolith is continuously bombarded by solar protons. And when protons crash into the regolith, they give rise to something called coincident gamma rays. So you're not only dealing with protein, uh, protons and galactic cosmic radiation, but also coincident gamma radiation. And so the most dangerous part of Mars in terms of radiation, if you are on Mars, like D-radiodurans, uh, is if you're, you know, if you're if you're dealing only with gamma radiation and galactic cosmic radiation, etc., then it's within the top 10 centimeters of Mars. That's where you're getting the highest background dose rates. And so that's under those conditions, if D-radiodurans were just below the surface of Mars, it might be expected to survive 1.5 million years or so. However, it's not bad that, still. It's not bad still. Of course, it's not bad. By comparison, uh, you know, even bacillus spores are relatively radiation sensitive. Uh, they would only last several tens of thousands of years. Mm -hmm. So then you get, so, okay. So the deeper you go, the more shielding there is, the longer things will survive. And ultimately, you are only left with background radiation. And so you use that dose rate to determine or to calculate how long something can survive, given knowledge about the radiation resistance. And that's sort of what we did. And we used uh, six different model organisms uh, that were very, very carefully chosen. D-radiodurans because it's astronomically radiation resistant. And then we showed all these effects of desiccation freezing. But we also used E. coli, Escherichia coli, which is part of our human microbiome, which is relatively radiation sensitive for comparison. But we also use bacillus species, both vegetative and spores. They are also represented in the human microbiome. And then baker's yeast, Saccharomyces cerevisiae. And of course, S. cerevisiae, anyone who drinks beer and eats bread and all these things, we're all, we're all full of yeast and bacteria. And Deinococcus, even though it is most well known for being an environmental organism uh, present in deserts, deserts and things like that, if you live in environments that contain Deinococcus, they will be part of your natural microbiota. And that has been demonstrated, published years ago, showing that Deinococcus is, in fact, uh, can be found in the human stomach, along with many, many other different microbes. So if there was no radiation present in the environment around these bacteria and they were desiccated, would they essentially they be in hibernation ever. forever? Yes, there would be nothing. If they're deeply frozen, there's it, there's nothing. They're just going to forever. But there's nowhere in the universe without radiation, so nothing is going to survive forever. Right, right. So, what does this mean for the potential for humanity to contaminate Mars? I mean, we know that our spacecraft, 
they try to clean these spacecraft off as best they can, but there's got to be some of this bacteria on board and uh, like only the hardiest of the hardy. Uh, Is there some of this bacteria hibernating on the outside of Perseverance right now? Well, uh, if there were any bacteria or spores on Perseverance, they are long dead because on the very surface of Mars, you are blasted by ultraviolet C radiation and even derated ants could only survive a matter of days, perhaps only a few hours, depending if whether it's night or day and things like that. So any microbes on the surface of Mars that are exposed to ultraviolet C will not last long. So you can well assume that the Perseverance rovers and all the others up there that are exposed to UVC, they are sterile. It's every, if anything gets below the surface and shielded by UVC, then you've got some lingering possibility of dormancy and survival. But in all of this, you know, planetary protection is not, is not strictly about preventing any contamination. It's about doing the best we can and understanding how to prevent the process of cross-contamination. And if you are at the surface, as I said, you wouldn't last very long UVC. But if you are beneath the surface, for example, Perseverance rover is coring and it's pulling out samples from the regolith, uh, maybe a few centimeters down, uh, then, as as I said, uh, that regolith is being bombarded by protons and galactic cosmic radiation causing coincident gamma rays. And that, too, is very unlikely to yield any uh, viable uh, bacteria or anything. So there's no, there, I don't believe that there's much chance of finding anything alive uh, on the surface missions. However, there are future missions planned. The ExoMars. Right. That's what I was going to ask, yeah. <laughs> Rosalind Franklin that is going down two meters below the surface. And of course, then the probability goes up that you might find something. Now, I think an important point that we make in our paper is given that these bacteria, deradiodurants, can survive the equivalent of 280 million years. Okay, that's fine, but those are whole viable cells. And when we go up there looking for life, we're not really looking for whole viable cells and growth. We're looking for the remnants of their biomolecules, which are being destroyed. So if a cell can survive 280 million years, then their biomolecules, their viruses, my goodness, would last much, much longer because viruses are, have, are very small. Their targets are very small targets. And of course, DNA, which is, you know, can be millions of base pairs long, even when it's fragmented and shredded, our technology can read it still and put it back together. That's the basis of whole genome sequencing that we do. So then, you know, with, with the Mars sample return mission, they're taking samples from Perseverance, which are going down just a few centimeters into the rock or whatever the regolith, whatever it's sampling, and then those are coming back. Those don't sound like the best places. If you wanted to do... You say they're not the best places. You have to start somewhere. Well, I understand that. I'm just saying like, like if... If you wanted the best chance for finding some of these more hardy bacteria and the fragments... Where would I look if I wanted to Yeah, that's exactly what I'm asking. Yeah. Where would you look? Well... I, as clearly stated in the paper, that even if there were organisms like Deinococcus radiodurans that were buried uh, on Mars Earth, the chances, they simply would not survive two billion years or more since the last flowing water. Okay, so we, we, we put in a, a, 
a qualifier there that states that there has to be some turnover of the regolith of the Martian surface. And we propose that maybe meteorite, meteorite, meteorite impacts that have occurred over the tens of, tens of thousands over the history of Mars have turned over. So when a meteorite hits the surface, it melts everything. There is water. It, it'll probably stay hot and warm for a long, long time. Uh, meteorites also, you know, if they're asteroids, there's evidence now that there are carbon compounds on something. So there might be some fertilizing that goes along with uh, oh, That's really interesting. So, so there, there is a lot to think about here. And are there so any, are there any of those impact sites within, uh, like within Jezero Crater? That no, they're not. I think I, I don't mm. know. You have to talk to someone who's, uh, yeah, or who's more integrated in those studies. But my understanding is, is that uh, the uh, the Jezero Crater is in fact much older than two billion years. Uh, right, but but there would be water. impacts on the crater that you could then uh, zip over, grab a grab a sample from the either the impact itself or the ejecta, and hopefully well, outside or in the perimeters. I mean, yeah. it's a reasonable thing. One can speculate that if there is Mars dormant beneath the surface, and occasionally uh, the area is hit by a meteorite, it then warms. There's lots of and certainly and there are places on Mars where there's lots of frozen water. So one can reasonably uh, think that that water would melt and provided there are carbon and energy sources that are required to rebuild its genome and to get its metabolism going in. Those are basic requirements. Without carbon sources for energy, uh, there will be no survival. So when we think about the time that Mars was warm and and wet, it was probably a nice watery world with clouds and atmosphere while Earth was still a molten ball of rock four and a half billion years ago. Obviously, those would be the perfect conditions for life on the surface, but then Mars dried out and either took its water inside or the sun blasted it away. Yep. And you had billions of years that it definitely wasn't habitable on the surface with interior heat and access to various organic material, how viable do you think that there is some kind of, of ecosystem, some kind of biosphere going on under the surface that could keep that life alive? It's a completely reasonable question. The preconditions for life probably existed on Mars before they existed on earth. And as the conditions deteriorated on the surface, life probably went, just escaped down down beneath the surface. Or in lava caves, somewhere where there was some durable protection. It could be, you know, we have life very deep here on Earth, miles down. <laughs> There's plenty of life and bacteria down there. There's no reason in my mind to think that if there was ever life on, li on Mars, that it wouldn't still be there beneath, deep below the surface. Hmm. The question is, could it be near the surface? And I suggest, our work suggests that, that that's a distinct possibility uh, because although everything has been frozen for billions of years, there are opportunities for recovery during meteorite impacts. And all you have to do is look at all those Martian surface pictures. <laughs> it's all broken up regolith. It's just, you know, it's just, it's just forever and ever uh, that meteor have been hitting the surface of Mars. 
And I think that's, it's a very reasonable thing to think. You hmm. just have to be. I mean, there have been meteorites that have hit the, the surface of Mars since the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter has been scanning the surface. Like new ones, there are new ones. Brand new. Yeah. Absolutely. So is there like a size that you would want to see? A minimum no, size? I, I, I think that go. you know, I'm a microbiologist. You, you, can, you know, can't ask me questions like that. <laughs> just I did. Go, well, I would go for, I mean, if, I would go for something that is big, mm. that had a big impact and where there, you know, where there's some landing sites and where you can see where the material has been dispersed. And if there's any evidence of frozen water uh, in, in the images that they take, that's all, you know, all would be pointing. If you're after looking, if you know, if you want to get viable life, but, you know, I don't think anyone's going up there to find viable life. We're just looking for the traces of life. You know, that answer. Right. You know, think, but why not? Why not well, look? I think, you know, I, I think, you know, of course, we all want to look. We've all, you know. Yeah. Last 500 years, we've all been thinking about Mars, you know. Yeah. Mars and things like that. Yeah. Now, you mentioned lava tubes. The, why do you think those make a really great place to search? Well, first of all, uh, on Earth, there's lots of microbiology in caves, and caves are sheltered, and and they're very limited in terms of energy and carbon and things like that. And on Mars, you know, there are, there are certainly lots of lots of lava tubes that have been mapped. I think, and if you think about it, you know, if if it's minus sixty eight degrees centigrade outside, and it might be slightly warmer, there may be some moisture. You never know. I'm just saying. There's no UVC in there. If you're in a cave, you're also shielded from galactic cosmic radiations and protons. So you're in a very sheltered environment there that may be more hospitable. And a good place to put a research station. If you can get there. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So then, you know, one of the ideas that has been bandied around as the as the source of life on Earth is that maybe life got going on Mars early on and then made its way to Earth. That's true. Per- perhaps through some kind of, of panspermia. So what, you know, if a colony of bacteria got blasted into space on a meteorite, what is the survivability of it out in space, do you think? The calculus is the same as on the surface of Mars. So if you have a, a you'd have to be a very large meteorite and you'd have to be 10 meters below the surface if you're a microbe to protect yourself from the galactic cosmic radiation protons. Yeah, it's very cold in space, but also, you know, if you're in the sun, you know, the sunny side gets really, really hot. And so you can be desiccated and and baked. Uh, so you have to be shielded not only from ionizing radiation, but also from temperature. Cold is fine. You'll last forever if you're frozen. Uh, but provided uh, uh, an asteroid, uh, something that is blasted off the surface of Mars uh, and is heading towards the inner solar system, towards the sun and crosses the path of Earth, you know, provided uh, it gets through our atmosphere, uh, it's it's not unreasonable to think that there, you know, panspermia could uh, could happen. It's it's just you know, it's feasible. Mm-hmm, no one's mm-hmm. no one is arguing with that. And what the about question, the reentry, like going through well, the atmosphere? To, there are lots of folks who have looked at uh, what happens when uh, meteorites go through our atmosphere and burn. In fact, you know. There, I think I have read. You know, I'm not an expert here, but there are certainly examples. I think where uh, where where rocks from the heavens can land and they can be still frozen, <laughs> or parts of them can be still frozen. So I'm not the one to ask about that. You'll have to right. you'll have yeah. to go to others yeah. for that. Now, you, we've talked about Mars, but I would assume that this same the same 
hardiness of this bacteria works well any place there's water, like in the undersea, under under the ice on Europa or Enceladus or Haumea or Pluto or Makimaki, all of these places. There's so many of these ice worlds. Mm-hmm. Do you think we've, we're sort of going to be seeing the same mechanism there? Well, you know, something like Europa is very different. So, you know, Europa may have uh, a surf, uh, an ocean you know, beneath, you know, the 10 miles or whatever they have of ice up there. And so one what, you know, again, you know, for life, you need, you need not only cells, you need carbon and energy sources. And uh, is it reasonable to think that there may be such things on Europa? The answer is yes. Uh, the question of whether... Uh, the, the prospects of contaminating uh, Europa, you, you can't, you have to think, well, you know, you have to get it into the ocean, but then whatever we transport there by mistake, then it also has to be able to grow. You can, you know, Dinococcus, if you put it, if you irradiate Dinococcus and put it into a glass of water, it's dead. It will die. It will, it's, there's, it will be nothing left. So it'll, you know, it just falls apart. So you need carbon and energy for survival regardless of your ability to survive radiation in terms of you know the doses and things like that so what's next for your research what what next big question would you love to be able to answer so my research uh, really revolves around the production of vaccines uh, not mars uh, the dinococcus bacteria have given us the recipe for extreme radiation resistance and these bacteria as well as all other organisms that we've looked at, including C. elegans nematode worms that are extremely radiation resistant. They accumulate what we call manganous antioxidants, which are incredibly powerful, catalytic, small chemicals that scavenge and eat up reactive oxygen species generated by radiation. And they're the same reactive oxygen species generated by desiccation. And so these manganous antioxidants in Dinococcus are consist of manganous ions, that's MN2+, that are bound to peptides and phosphate. And when these are combined together in the laboratory, they form these manganese antioxidants that are incredibly powerful in preventing protein oxidation. There's nothing comparable out there that uh, is able to protect proteins from reactive oxygen species compared to these manganese antioxidants. However, These manganese antioxidants do not prevent DNA damage or RNA damage caused by reactive oxygen species. These manganese antioxidants are specific to proteins. So whatever bacterium or virus you can grow up and you irradiate it, and if you irradiate them in the presence of the manganese antioxidants, you will destroy their genomes, but you will protect all of their protein epitopes on the surfaces cells. And so you end up with a sort of a ghost of the original, which is uh, which has been tested now for many different viruses, including bacteria, and has pro- and is now providing vaccines for which there were previously no candidates. And this work has been going on for about five, six years now. Uh, it's being commercialized. There's new polio vaccines. There's new uh, Isinitobacter baumani vaccines as a result of this developing. And so I think that goes. That's really interesting. That goes, you know, it's not all about Mars. It's really, this is a side topic. Yeah, um, yeah. Into finding new ways of making vaccines. And uh, this is something very new. 
Oh, it's, it's absolutely fascinating when you think about how there is so much biology going on all around us on our skin, uh, but in the dirt all around us. Like I know I could, I could go and scoop up a shovel full of dirt and discover new life forms that nobody's ever seen. That's true. You, you probably would not be able to grow them because most bacteria in the soil uh, are unculturable. So if right. we, can't even, if we can't even culture most of the bugs here oh. on Earth. We're never going to be able to culture anything from Mars, I don't think. But yeah, it's amazing. We'll still be able to know if it's there. Oh, that's interesting. Huh. Well, I, Dr. Daly, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. If people want to follow your work, what is the best place to do that? Oh, I think in, you know, in the literature, you just go to PubMed right. and you put in daily Dinococcus and our 60 papers or so over the last 30 years are there. Everything new gets there. And, you know, we're very good at, at you know, this is all taxpayer uh, funded, and we have a responsibility to get our work into the public domain and let folks know what we're doing. And that's where you come in. It's very important what you do in communicating our ideas to the general public. Well, even if, if you do find life on Mars, would you let me know? <laughs> well, it won't be me who finds it, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. You can also get even more space news in my weekly email newsletter. I send it out every Friday to more than 55,000 people. I write every word. There's no ads, and it's absolutely free. Subscribe at universetoday.com slash newsletter. You can also subscribe to the Universe Today podcast. There you can find an audio version of all of our news, interviews, and Q&As, as well as exclusive content. Subscribe at universetoday.com slash podcast, or search for Universe Today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. A huge thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and helps us stay independent. Thanks to all the interplanetary researchers, the interstellar adventurers, and the galaxy wanderers. And a special thanks to Josh Schultz and Andrew M. Gross who support us at the Master of the Universe level. All your support means the universe to us.